I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're joined by Las Cruces native Michael Patrick Kazmarek, one of the producers of The Pope's Exorcist which was released April 14th in the U.S. and is in theaters now. To date, the film has grossed more than $60 million internationally. The film stars Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Inspired by the actual files of Father Gabriele Amort, chief exorcist of the Vatican, the Pope's exorcist follows Amort as he investigates a young boy's terrifying possession and ends up uncovering a centuries-old conspiracy the Vatican has desperately tried to keep hidden. Known by some as the Dean of Exorcists, to others as the Vatican's Exorcist. We have more questions for you, Father Mort. You have a problem with me. You talk to my boss, the Pope. Father Mort was, to thousands of people, a light in the darkness. A real man who conducted thousands of exorcisms for the church, Father Amort was a frontline crusader in the battle against evil who chronicled his exploits in two memoirs that go far beyond the spooky anecdotes to explore the threats to humanity from demons. Amort was appointed chief exorcist of the Diocese of Rome in 1986 and remained there until 2016 when he died at age 91. In those three decades, Amort claimed to have conducted over 60,000 exorcisms. Now, the stories of Father Amort come to the screen for the first time in The Pope's Exorcist. Michael attended Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic School and Oñata High School, where he played football for four years and graduated in 1999. He went on to attend the University of New Mexico and Cal State Los Angeles, where he earned a B.A. in communications with an emphasis in film, radio, and television in 2003. We'll talk to Michael about how he became involved in the project, how he got started, how he got to where he is, and who helped him along the way. We'll also talk about what may be next for the young producer. This week, I'm thankful to have Michael joining us. Michael, thanks for making time to visit with us today and share your story. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Damien. I want to start at the beginning. When do you think you first developed an interest in film? Oh, you know what? I have been uh, uh, a lover of movies since I was uh, a young kid. Um, I think my dad was the one who really got me into to film and, and particularly horror movies, I'd say, ever since I was a kid. 
I've been watching, you know, every kind of R-rated horror movie I could get my hands on. I was always begging <laughs> my parents to let me watch that. And so eventually they, at first they were kind of like, I don't know if these are appropriate for you. And then eventually they realized like this kid's just in love with this stuff and let him, let him do it. So uh, yeah, I grew up, you know, in the eighties, really loving sort of like the, the Freddie and Jason movies. Um, obviously I'm a huge fan of the original exorcist movie, which is why I've, you know, created an exorcism movie now called the Pope's exorcist. But always been a lover of film and, uh, and horror. And it, like I said, I think my dad got me started when, um, he used to, he, he loved films and he would always, uh, he'd always watch horror movies too. And so sometimes he'd wake me up at night and uh, say, Hey, do you want to watch this movie with me? And I'd say, sure. And then he'd end up falling asleep and he wouldn't watch the whole movie and ended up watching it <laughs> by myself. So that's probably where the love of film first started. I remember being a very young kid, uh, way too young and staying up late to watch uh, American Werewolf in London, the great original. Movie. That's a great film. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think for me, I, I want to say probably the first horror movie I remember watching with my dad like that, where he would, where he'd wake me up, I think was, it was the original night of the living dead. I remember sitting there and watching that one by myself and just, you know, kind of falling in love with the genre. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a fun, I, I love horror movies because they're kind of like a roller coaster ride. You know, you, you, you're going through it, you get scared. And then at the end you kind of have this, this, uh, you know, if you've got a good resolution at the end, kind of a, a sense of peace after gone, after going on this, you know, kind of a, a crazy and, and incredible journey um, with these characters and these monsters and, you know, the mayhem that, that ensues. So to me, it's just a really fun ride. And I always liked also sharing you know, when I was a teenager here um, in Las Cruces, I would always invite people over and try to find the craziest, scary movie I could put on and, and you know, just try to shock, shock my friends. My mom used to always say, you know, shock value, Michael. I was always just trying to, like, get sort of a reaction out of an audience. Um, and so that's one of the things that I love about horror movies is they're so visceral and uh, you get such a you, you take away such an emotional journey uh, if you watch a good one. Um, and I love to, to, to go on that journey with people and, and experience it myself as well. I also grew up watching the Nightmare on Elm Streets and so many times at the end, they, they left you kind of with that uneasy, unresolved feeling, you know, that, that Freddie's not done yet. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Especially with all the sequels. I mean, and, and what, one thing that I love about uh, Freddie is I ended up working for the movie studio that produced those films uh, for Bob Shea, who was the, uh, the CEO of New Line Cinema. And the original producer of the original Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Wow. And I remember that's what my mom used to always tell me as a kid is I'd say, oh, mom, there's a new Freddy movie out or there's another Jason movie or, or whatever it is that might be coming out. Another Night of the Living Dead. And I say, Michael, they're just trying to make money off of the sequels. Like, that's the point of making the sequel. <laughs> I say, I don't care, mom. Like, I love these things. I'm so excited. There's a part seven or there's a part eight coming out, whatever it might be. So, um, but yeah, that, uh, Bob definitely figured out uh, the formula with that one. I mean, I think New Line is still known as the house that Freddy built uh, really by producing that one horror movie, which turned into a successful franchise, he, he pretty much built an entire movie studio out of it. That's now, you know, still part of Warner brothers. Yeah. So. And that really, that really kind of was the beginning of the beginning of, you know, like all of these sequel franchises, there may have been a Smokey and the bandit part two, but, uh, but there weren't nine of them. <laughs> you know, <Exactly>, right. <laughs> yeah. No, Freddy and Jason, I mean, I think that I'm, kind of led to the fast and the furious, you know, where it just goes on and on and on and on. 
Absolutely. You're right. I mean, that's, that's the, uh, that's the model for Hollywood. When, when something works, they're going to, they're going to repeat it. Um, and again, for, for fans of, of the genre or of any of those franchises, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a great thing when you can, when you can have a franchise and you can keep um, the fans satisfied by giving them future installments. Tell me a little bit about your education, Michael. Sure. So, Damien, I I, um, I started out uh, attending school uh, or elementary school here in Las Cruces at uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic School. It's now known as Las Cruces uh, Catholic School. But I went uh, kindergarten through eighth grade there. And I really that's where I really fell in love with my faith uh, in God, uh, in, in the Lord, uh, with, fell in love with the rosary and our blessed mother. Um, it just was a, a wonderful experience for me going to Catholic school here in Las Cruces. And um, I think, you know, obviously my, my faith has stayed with me since then. And it's been really exciting to be able to take my faith and infuse it in projects like the Pope's Exorcist and, uh, and bring that to, to audiences and, and cinemas worldwide. And then after that, you went to uh, another school that uh, no longer exists under the same name. You're right. Yeah, they, they keep changing the name of all my schools here, Damien. So, so I graduated from uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, Catholic School in 95, and I went to Oñate uh, High School, which is now known as Oregon Mountain High. And I graduated there in 99. And, you know, I'd say, too, part of my journey there, I, I have to definitely give uh, a shout out to, to two educators that were a, a big part of my journey. Um, one was named Mr. Castellani at, at uh, Las Cruces Catholic School or Immaculate Heart of Mary School. He was my eighth grade teacher and he was a a New Yorker who had been very successful being an engineer and, you know, just had gone all over the world and worked on projects all over uh, different in different countries and then decided he wanted to kind of come back and give back to the community. And you didn't really need a job. He was retired and had done well for himself, but he wanted to go teach at this uh, at the Catholic school and just try to instill some additional, you know, uh, values and mindsets in, in, um, in the students there. And so I was very lucky. He was only there for one year. Um, but he definitely challenged us, uh, us, us eighth graders in terms of trying to think big with our lives, trying to, he would always have a, a great quote about Las Cruces is great. Um, and it's a great place to grow up and it's a great place to live and maybe even a great place to come back, but you definitely want to get out for a little bit and do something amazing and then come back if, if that's what, if that's, you know, would be the, the best course of, of path for you. So I'd say he was really a good guy in terms of, um, just starting that sort of planting that seed to sort of think and dream big. And then when I was at Oñate high school, uh, there was an AP English teacher there named Miss Rosemary Kirby. And she uh, she also, I think, was honored with Teacher of the Year at one point in time for the state of Mexico. And um, taking her AP English class, I'd say, really challenged me because it, it was my senior year and same sort of thing. You know, I had Castellani at the end of Immaculate Heart of Mary, you know, sort of preparing me to go out into high school in the world. And then I thankfully had Miss Kirby at the end of Oñate High School at the end of my senior year, just really challenging me, saying, hey, what do you want to do with your life? And why don't you why don't you think big? There's lots of career paths. But, you know, what would what would your biggest dream be if you could do anything? What would that be? And I and I don't know if I really I'd say those are probably the two best educators that I had in my time here at Las Cruces or living in Las Cruces and being educated here, just having those educators that really tried to, you know, instill that drive of trying to go out there and dream and think big. And so I really have to thank both of them for, uh, you know, pushing me along this path, I'd say. And then after high school, you went on to UNM and ended up at Cal State LA. You said that you took your first film class at UNM in 1999. 
And, yes. and you know what? I'd have to go back. I can't remember if it was nine. It was the 99, 2000 semester. I can't remember if it was in the fall or the spring, but my freshman year. So yes, I left on Yate in 99 and then I started at uh, UNM and that is where I took my, I took, uh, I think it was a film appreciation class and I almost dropped it because I remember getting the syllabus and I thought, oh, this is going to be too much work. And I remember even calling my mom up and saying, I don't know if I'm going to stick it, stick, stick it with this, um, with this film course, because I have so many other classes and, you know, film just kind of seems superfluous. You know, it seems like, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be something that I end up spending my life doing. I um, think I I'm, may have been in that same class, Michael. Oh, really? <laughs> Are I, you kidding me? I, I just let me know. Does this sound familiar? Uh, Buster Keaton, yep. uh, The Shining. Yep. Yep. I remember we had a TA who said uh, on the final, the final papers that we had to write the final like film analysis paper. Uh, it was the, the one rule was you could write it on any movie you wanted, but no star Wars papers. And then I remember <laughs> the guy laughed and he said, and, and I know some of you guys will probably hate me for this. He said, but if I don't make this rule, I'm going to get 50 star Wars papers. So I don't want that. <laughs> I, I wrote mine on the shining actually, but oh, very uh, cool. it's possible we were in the same class. That's so funny. It's a small world. <laughs> yeah. So how long did you go to UNM? I was only at UNM for a year, to be honest with you, uh, my freshman year. And then, I, be, you know, while I was there and, and also taking that class, that's where it kind of really hit me that, OK, I, I do really want to, you know, pursue a career in film. And the best way to do that would be to move to Los Angeles at that point. Again, taking in the advice of Mr. Castellani and, and Ms. Kirby. And, and just kind of going to the film, you know, epicenter, the hub of the entertainment industry. I, I, that's kind of what started calling to me in, the, in my freshman year there at UNM. And I met a student or actually I, I, I um, ran into a friend of mine who I knew from um, from the Las Cruces Catholic schools. He, he went to Holy Cross uh, when they had two schools there. And his name was Marcus. And he had, he was just about to leave to go on a national student exchange uh, for, from NMSU to go to Cal State LA. And so when he mentioned that to me, I had never heard of the National Student Exchange, the NSE is what, what they call it. And he just really encouraged me. He said, hey, it's really great. It's a great program because, you know, even if you're whether you're on scholarship um, or, or whatever your, your, your financial situation is at your host university, you could basically go to another university more or less for free or for the same cost. Or if you had a scholarship covering all, all of your tuition and fees, then that would be covered at your at your new school. So um, he was getting ready to leave. And I said, you know what? That's the path for me. I'm going to have to get on this on the student exchange. And um, and I didn't get on it my my uh, freshman year, but my sophomore year, I applied and I was I thankfully accepted. And then I finished my junior and senior years at Cal State L.A. Later, you would go on to become the director of broadcasting operations at KRWG, which listeners probably know is the PBS and NPR stations based at NMSU. You did that from 2018 to 2020. Can you talk a little bit about your role there? Sure. Um, actually, it was interesting because I I transferred from UNM to NMSU for my sophomore year for just a year to get on that student exchange program. And so in a way, NMSU was the school or the institution that took me uh, to Los Angeles through the, the student exchange. And then um, about just a few years before COVID, back in 2018, I made the decision with my husband to move back to Las Cruces. Uh, and I, I accepted a position at KRWG as the director of broadcasting operations. I'm actually going in there this afternoon to do an interview with uh, with Anthony Moreno on uh, for Newsmakers uh, this afternoon. So it would be good to the to, new to director of broadcasting operations. 
Yes. Yeah. As the director of broadcasting operations, the, the general manager had just recently left the station. And then um, the uh, the former broadcasting ops director assumed the general manager role. So that that role opened and uh, it was just a good fit for me. Like I said, I was looking for something where I could continue doing the career that I'd been doing for 20 years in Los Angeles, but here in Las Cruces. And so working there was uh, a really great opportunity to, to be able to come back to to the community. Um, and I really love there. There's some amazing people there at here. WG, the uh, I, I would sort of supervise the um, the programming and the engineering departments while I was there. And so, you know, Mario um, uh, and, and Norma, there do an amazing job of, of running those two departments. And uh, Mario Jimenez and uh, Mario Tejas, I'll, I'll both work together. And then Norma Vachot, um, like I said, Anthony, there's just some really great people there. So I had a great time uh, working with them as I was sort of um, while this uh, movie was going on in the background in development. So what were you doing in L.A. before you came back to Cruces? Well, I did a number of things while I was out in Los Angeles. My career took a number of different turns uh, while I was there, but it was it was always a fun ride. Um, I, shortly out of we were like right out of college, actually, as soon as I graduated Cal State L.A., I took an internship with New Line Cinema, uh, like I'd mentioned earlier before. So the house that Freddie built and it was kind of a dream come true because I, I had, you know, for years wanted to work there um, and I used every connection I could to try to find, you know, a foot in the door there. And finally, I got the call for an internship. And so I started as an intern there. I ended up working in their marketing uh, department for a while um, for in their worldwide marketing department, working on uh, the third Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King and doing some uh, organizing some different promotions for that movie, but my heart was really in development. And I knew that I wanted to be a movie producer. And so um, I short, I left the marketing department after just a couple months when a position opened and I was a, an assistant to several um, vice presidents at the, uh, at the mini major studio new line for a couple of years. And um, I learned the whole sort of filmmaking process from a development exec perspective while I was there. And during that process, I realized that I, I ultimately really wanted to produce my own films. So I ended up leaving new line after just a couple of years, I was sort of at that point where it, it you, you either needed to make a jump to become an executive either at the company or at another company. And I, and, you know, to be honest with you, like I said, going, growing up, going to Catholic school, uh, my Catholic faith has always had a big, played a big role in my life. And so I always tell people it was kind of like my quarter life crisis, if you will, sort of in my mid twenties. And I decided, you know what, this is great working at a movie studio. And I think the last movie that I was, you know, assisting and working on was uh, snakes on a plane. And I said, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so, it's so much fun to be there, you know, with Sam Jackson. He's like, get these mother effing snakes off this mother effing plane. It's like, it's, it was a blast, but I started to just kind of ask myself, is this, is this all that I'm meant to do with my life? Or is there something more? Is there something, is there a way I could make a bigger impact? Um, I felt like I was working on lots of movies that were entertaining audiences, but I wanted to do something that might also, you know, inspire and enlighten in some way and help share and help share my Catholic faith. So I ended up leaving New Line and I took a position working. Um, I worked for a couple different uh, smaller Catholic production companies that were actually run by uh, Catholic priests. So first I worked with an outfit called the Paulus who had an, uh, a production company called Paulus Productions. And then uh, they also had a screenwriting award called the Humanitas Prize. So we would give away like 150 grand every year to different uh, A-list producers and screenwriters that had um, that had produced screenplays that were uh, that were then honored. And, and what I liked about Humanitas is they, uh, their, their criteria was, um, you know, they were looking for films that again, not only entertain, but that uh, examine and, and uplift the human spirit and, and enlighten the human consciousness. So uh, it was 
really cool to, 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 to I was a, a director at uh, Humanitas for a while. I also launched the uh, Humanitas Productions while I was there, worked for Paulus Productions. And then eventually I ended up um, working with the, I went to go work for the Jesuits who had an outfit there as well called Loyola Productions. And uh, Loyal is actually the production company that's also listed on the uh, on the Pope's Exorcist. So I worked there for uh, about five years uh, at Loyola, and then um, I ended up leaving Loyola to go work for Sony Pictures for a while in their marketing in their worldwide marketing uh, department. Um, and it was great to, to be there at Sony too, and to kind of go back. It had been a couple of years since I had left the. Um, the studio system had worked for the, the priests at the production companies for a while and then was able to go back kind of like, you know, about 10 years later and see, OK, how's the studio? How's the studio system changed in the time that I that in the time since since I'd left? Is, so um, oh, go for it. Is Loyola affiliated with Loyola Marymount? Uh, yes and no. It, not officially in that they are they are definitely two separate uh, organizations. But the priest who runs Loyola Productions is also a professor at uh, LMU, and he also is the uh, the rector for the Jesuit community there. So he has gotcha. a lot of ties at LMU, and I think their their offices are now on the LMU campus. But they're still a separate production company. Gotcha. So so then what happened? So then um, then my husband and I decided that it was time to move back to Las Cruces and that we'd spend enough time. You know, he had worked for Fox and Disney and Warner Brothers and a number of studios himself and TV Guide. He's a former journalist himself, actually. So you, you guys will have to chat sometime. Um, but we, we you know, we talked and we just decided that it was time to, to leave the big city, especially with, you know, Zoom and, and all the you know technologies today to, to, to continue working on project on projects in Los Angeles. It's a lot easier now than it was, say, you know, know, 10, 20 years ago. So we made the decision that uh, if we could find something here in, in Las Cruces, that we'd move back. And he also, um, he really wanted to become a teacher. So that was kind of the driving force for us at the time. He came back here and he went to NMSU and he earned his master's in education uh, and then ended up teaching elementary school. So that was kind of what brought us back. And I'll tell you when, when COVID hit um, shortly thereafter moving here, we, we just thought that we had definitely made the right decision in terms of leaving LA and coming back to, to Cruces to work for CareWG and uh, continue school. You've speaking of NMSU and uh, teaching, you've also been an adjunct professor in the Creative Media Institute at NMSU. Tell us about that. Yes, I have. And that was actually one of my passions that, uh, again, I'm, I'm the son of two educators. And so, you know, education's just always kind of uh, been around me and, and uh, you know, it's in my blood and my DNA. And so I was really exciting. I was really excited when I moved back here uh, and I contacted the CMI department immediately and I said, hey, I'd love to try to, to teach some classes and, and bring some of the experience that I've had in Los Angeles and share it with the students in the community here. And so um, they allowed me to teach a uh, producing class, which was awesome. Uh, and it was actually during that first year that COVID hit. So unfortunately we only had maybe maybe four or five in-person classes before I had to pivot and then find a way to do the production class over Zoom, but was able to, to manage that. Uh, and I think that um, it ended up being a really insightful course, I think, for everybody who took it. And then they've also approached me to teach some uh, some other classes, like they have a business and film uh, course. And so uh, I haven't been able to make that work with my schedule just yet, but I'm hoping to teach some some courses in the future there with uh, with the, with CMI. You said that you're one of just two active Producers Guild of America members who live in southern New Mexico. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yes, there's another uh, gentleman named uh, Choi Scouten, uh, who uh, is a filmmaker, local filmmaker, sure. and he and I actually only know that about the um, the PGA because he reached out to me when I after I moved back here shortly after I started working for KRWG. He sent me an email and he said, "Hey, you're you're the only other Producers Guild of America member in Southern New Mexico. We got to get together." So uh, we've since you know hung out a number of times since then, and he's a great guy, and hope to maybe do a project with him someday too. Your production company is called Jesus and Mary. Clearly, Catholicism has played a huge role in making you who you are today, uh, as it does in The Pope's Exorcist. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be, you know, I, I, I think we're all children of God. And, and you know, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for having God in my life. And especially through through the Catholic faith um, is how I've, I've gotten to know him and, and our Blessed Mother. And, uh, you know, just the power of prayer, you know, back when I was um, trying to get that internship I mentioned at New Line Cinema, one of the ways that I did it was every morning I would get up and I would pray a decade of the rosary and just ask the Lord, Lord, please open this door for me. I, I, I would, I feel like I need to get into this company and, and this is where I feel like I'm being called, but it's very difficult. It's not easy to do. I'm going to need you to open the door for me. So it took about three months of praying a decade every morning uh, before I got that call. But, you know, I, I, and especially since that happened so early on, I always have, have kind of felt that God is, is shepherding my career. Um, I'm always praying in terms of any, you know, uh, career decisions I make or, or with any projects that I work on. And, you know, my prayer is always, um, I always tell the Lord in, in my prayer for the Pope's exorcist, the entire time I was working on it was Lord, please um, let this project glorify you honor our blessed mother and help bring about the conversion of sinners, including my own conversion. Um, and, and I really feel that the, the film, uh, now that it's out and, and every, and everybody's had a chance to react to it, we're getting really great reviews. Uh, we, you know, some of the most conservative Catholic newspapers in the country have given us favorable reviews. So I, and I know the religious order that we worked with as well to obtain the rights to make the, uh, the movie in the first place, they were pleased with the way that the, um, uh, the movie came out as well in terms of the way that we featured the priests and, and the Catholic faith and the power of prayer. So I really, it's such a, it's, it's, it's such an amazing experience for me to, um, to be able to work on something like this, that's so close to my faith and then be able to share it, uh, wide with audiences. Um, it's just sort of a dream come true. And I, I have to thank the Lord for it because it's all through him. You also produced a TV show called 40, which is a reference to the 40 days of Lent. Tell us about that. Yes, 40 is an interesting series. Um, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic world where uh, people wake up and everybody's sort of disappeared except for this select group of people. And they're trying to figure out their journey of, of why did this happen? Who are they? And where are they going? Um, and it's uh, it's a, it's, a, it's another really uh, existential sort of um, uh, project that really analyzes a different thing, different aspects of, of human relationships and, and what it means to be human. Um, it, and, you you know, we did it actually as a project for Catholic schools at the time. So I was producing for the Jesuits at, at Loyola Productions when that uh, when that project went. In fact, that might that might have been one of the first projects I worked on um, with with uh, Loyola. Uh, at the time. And um, the what we did was we partnered with Catholic schools where we did a different we did a new episode each week throughout the six weeks of Lent. So there uh, they would get a new episode. And then there also there was like a curriculum component to the episode so that the Catholic schools could sit there and they could watch the, the episode. And then they'd have sort of study guides that would break the episode down and talk about it and, and you know, related to the students lives and Lent and different things. So um, it was just a really cool, different type of series 
series to work on because it had that, um, that, that, you know, study guide component that went out and, and where we partnered with Catholic schools. Right. Going back to the Pope's exorcist, the film's writer, uh, the Reverend Edward Siebert is a Jesuit priest. He kind of stumbled across the story of Father Amort and seemed surprised when you encouraged him to bring the story to the big screen. Sure. Well, and actually, uh, Father Eddie is a um, he is a Jesuit priest, but he's actually not the writer on the film. He's one of the executive producers on the movie. Uh, just just to clarify that um, there, there's a number there's a couple of different writers that got screen credit on it. Uh, uh, but uh, Eddie's one of the exec producers. But and I actually was the one who um, I was the one who had initially read Father Morse books. Uh, actually, when I left New Line during that quarter life crisis, I had about six months before I ended up getting a, a job working for um, for the polis. And during that time, I just was, you know, reading everything I could get my hands on, living my best life as one does when you're not working. And that's when I came across um, those two books. Uh, an Exorcist Tells, or the two memoirs of Father Gabriel Amorth, uh, An Exorcist Tells a Story, and An Exorcist More Stories. And so I read them and I immediately thought they would make a great movie one day. Um, and so it wasn't until I was actually working with Eddie, though, that I thought the opportunity sort of presented itself to um, to seek out the rights and to try to put a deal together to, to make this film. And so I brought the, the idea to Eddie and I said, Hey, I think that we should partner on this and it'd be great to have a Jesuit priest on it. Um, and Eddie's, he'll be the first to, to tell you that he was very hesitant at first because he's not a fan of horror movies, uh, per se, uh, or, or like, he's not necessarily a fan of the genre. It's not his favorite genre. I, could, I guess I, I should say. And then he also, um, he also said that like, you know, that, that the exorcism stuff kind of scares him a little bit. So he had started reading the books and he came in one day and he said, Oh, I got to stop reading those books at night. You know, they're just getting too scary for me. And so I said, well, I think we should do this. And and he being a man of, of God, he said, well, let me pray about it. And so he took about two weeks in prayer. And actually there was another uh, woman who works there at, um, Loyola Productions named uh, Enid, and she's a former uh, former sister, a former nun, and so um, she had read the books as well, and she was encouraging Father Eddie. So between me and, and Enid uh, uh, being the little birds in his ear, after about two weeks of prayer, he came back and he said, "Okay, I've, I've prayed about it. Let's let's roll the dice and let's try to make this happen." And so that's sort of how we first started uh, working on the project to begin with. But things didn't go really well. You reportedly reached out to. Amort through his religious orders publishing company in back in 2015. And you were told by their executives that lots of people have tried to secure the film and television rights, but were always denied. But your persistence apparently paid off. It did. And again, I, I, I have to just thank God for that. It was it's a gift from him that he um, opened that door at that time for me as well. I had uh, when I reached out to the to the publishing company, yes, they mentioned they said, hey, we, we always take any any requests to Father Remorse. And he, he lived a couple hours north from where the publishers were. So it was a little bit of a journey for them to, to you know, schedule the meeting and go see him. And they'd always go see him in person when they had these requests. And, and that's when they were just very um, open with me. And they said, you know, many people have tried this. Many producers have called in the past. And the answer's always been no, but we are always happy to take any new offers uh, to Father Remorse. And so, um, again, I, I, and I think what helped as well uh, is I wrote him a, um, some detailed correspondence and that was then translated through 
his publishing company. And I tried to just assure him as best as I could that, that I was, uh, you know, that I was very devoted to the Catholic faith, to the rosary in general, to our, our blessed mother. He, he also was a, a, a priest that had a, a high regards, uh, for our lady. And, um, you know, I, I was going to the daily, daily mass at the time. And I just told him, I said, Hey, I know that you, it's probably, I know it's very risky to, to, you know, um, to give up the rights to your, to your memoirs and have somebody have a producer, try to turn them into a film or a TV series. But I told him I would, especially being partnered with, with Eddie as a Jesuit priest, I, I told him that through the, through these letters, I tried to assure him as best I could that I would try to preserve the Catholicity of, um, of his books. And, uh, and that I would try to make sure that he was, that his, that his image wasn't tarnished and that we would try to sh- like treat him and the church with as much respect. As, as I possibly could. And I think, uh, and thankfully, thank God, uh, he, um, he responded to that and decided that he was willing to do a deal um, with me and, and Father Eddie to try to bring this uh, story to the big screen. When did you really begin to realize that it may have legs? Uh, you mean when the from the box office or from uh, the development um, process well, in terms of setting well, the project? Well, uh, throughout. Sure. Well, yeah, and you know, I think that the big thing it all comes down to to this guy who's really a, a hero. You know, he was a, a World War II uh, soldier. He fought in World War II against uh, against the fascists. Uh, uh, you know, he was a partisan soldier in, in Italy. He was a journalist, a theologian, um, and then he served as the chief exorcist for the Vatican for thirty years and and documented these, um, all these accounts in his books. And so he's really such, uh, such an amazing, um, icon really, uh, and, and hero that, and, and even just that title, the, the chief exorcist for the Vatican. So I think in terms of your question, in terms of legs, I noticed very early on, once I, once me and father Eddie were able to set up a deal to go out and start pitching to different studios to, to bring this project to life. I realized early on that, um, you know, anytime we sat in a meeting with somebody and we said, oh, we've got the rights to the chief exorcist for the Vatican, people's just heads would explode. They say, what? Like, I didn't even know that that job existed. What? Hey, tell me more about this guy. Um, I remember one guy in one of the meetings we were at said, so this guy's like, we were like, this guy's done over 100, 150,000 exorcisms. And one guy was like, wait, so he's like the Wilt Chamberlain of exorcists. And I'm like, well, we're picking him more like he's James Bond. <laughs> he's the James Bond of exorcists. But if that's what helps you to wrap your mind around it, that's fine. But I, so I think I, I realized early on that this guy was just so interesting and everybody was interested in learning more about him. Anytime we, you know, we, we took a meeting or, or, and then once we set up the project with Sony, um, it, it just started to, to sort of snowball from there. It was always on, it was always sort of a very active development project for them. The execs there were always very excited about um, trying to put it together and put it into production. And, you know, you mentioned Russell Crowe, same thing when, when Russell Crowe got the script, he said, you know, one of his interviews recently, Recently, he mentioned that um, he didn't he didn't even believe he thought he, he he questioned if the chief exorcist of the Vatican would even be a real position. He said he didn't even know that existed. And, right. and, he, and as soon as he realized that it was real, he, he said that's what really um, drew him into the story. And, and he had to do you know, he just started researching the man. And the more he found out, the more obsessed he sort of became and interested with him. And so that that's, you know, ultimately what uh, what intrigued him enough to get him to sign on for the role. So, you know, I really have to thank God in just that this guy was such an amazing man and so interesting that, um, you know, the the it it had legs from day one for sure. And then in terms of the box office, um, we've had a really great response. I think we're almost at around 62 million worldwide now between uh, the international domestic uh, cumes. And so it's just um, it's people are really responding to the movie. They're really responding to Russell Crowe. 
pro in the row in the role and 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 just in the um and just in learning more about this amazing man can you briefly explain the film for our listeners Sure. Uh, so uh, we the story is basically about Father Gabriel Morth, who is a uh, who was the chief exorcist for the Vatican for 30 years. And um, we're telling a story about it. one of the demons that he encountered in his books. Uh, I'll say that he, one of the, the most difficult demons that he that he referenced in his books that he ever dealt with was a demon that could jump between multiple people and possess multiple people at once. So that was kind of one of the source materials that would or one of the source stories that we pulled from for the story. And so early Early on in the movie, uh, Father Morth is sent by the Pope, who is his boss, uh, to visit a young family in Spain or a family in Spain who has a young boy who has become possessed. And so uh, Father Morth's job or Russell Crowe's job in, in the movie is to sort of figure out the mystery behind why did this demon possess this boy and this family? And what is the demon ultimately after? And does the demon have higher sights on him and ultimately the church and the Pope at some point? So what drew you to the film? Well, like I said, I think it was ever since I first ever since I first read Father Remorse memoirs, I just, it, you know, and, and being a, a film producer and, and a guy that had you know worked in Hollywood for for a number of years at that point, when I read them, I just knew that that cinematically there just were so many cool visual things in the books to depict. And also too, one thing I had never seen in, you know, there's lots of exorcism movies out there. Uh, it, there's almost like one that, that comes out. It seems like there's almost an exorcism movie every month these days. And it's really hard to differentiate and make an original exorcism film within the genre. But when I read Father Remorse accounts, I knew right away that this was so different than any of the other movies that I had seen. Maybe the original Exorcist would sort of be the closest. And even Father Morth was a big fan of the original Exorcist movie. Um, and he even writes about it in his books. But uh, but the way that Father Morth would approach the exorcisms and that that he worked with, um, you know, he worked really closely with doc, medical doctors and psychologists, psychiatrists. He would refer 98 percent of his patients that came to him thinking they were possessed. He would refer them to, uh, you know, to different doctors. Um, because they weren't actually possessed. And so he, the, the idea that this guy was, you know, was was working with doctors, was a like, you know, a, a, a true professional in, in, in with all due respects to his ministry. And then the way that he was so dedicated to his faith and prayer and the way that he talks about the conversations that he would have with demons and where they would, you know, be saying terrible things about our Lord and our lady. And, and the, the way that they, he would say, you know, that they, for instance, like one thing that I thought was really interesting was he said that the demons um, uh, hated to be defeated by our lady, uh, by Jesus's mother, even more than, than God and Jesus himself, because, um, because it was more humiliating in the demons prideful minds to be defeated by Jesus's mother. So it's, I always tell people, it's kind of like, you know, it'd be one thing, like if you lose to Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, but if you lost to Tom Brady's mother, you know, it would, <laughs> it, it would add injury to insult. And that's how the demons, I guess, feel in the, in the middle of the exorcism. That's why they hate the rosary so much and, um, and anything to do with our lady. So when I came across, you know, passages like that in the book, I said, that's what really drew me to this material. I said, this, this would be a really interesting exorcism film to make visually it would be really compelling but theologically there's a lot in there that um again is referenced that you don't see in your average horror movie or your average exorcism movie so that's what really drew me to the material what's next for you i know that a sequel to the pope's exorcist has been confirmed but do you have other projects in the works 
Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, as a producer, you always have things, you know, um, that are, you know, it, that, that you're working on trying to get uh, produced and trying to, to to make happen. And so, I, you know, one thing I'd love to do, I've, I've had for a number of years, kind of like, you know, like you mentioned, I had been working on the, it, it took, it's taken since 2015, to, since I started working on the Pope's Exorcist to actually get this to theaters through a major studio. Um, but I have a, a great project on, uh, on Our Lady of Fatima that I would love to tell someday. Uh, that is, and same thing too, it's based on the memoirs of one of the, um, the visionaries in Fatima. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but in 1917, three, um, shepherd children, uh, in Fatima, Portugal had an apparition of the, the blessed mother, right. uh, and she appeared to them over a period of six months. And at the end of the six months, there was a, um, part of the people she would appear on the same day and same time every month and and of course people some people believe some people didn't so one of the things that came up is they asked the kids they said hey if this is really the virgin mary ask her to give us some sort of a sign or some sort of a miracle and so the the virgin mary said uh, assured the children and, and the crowds that were starting to come to these apparitions that on her final apparition which was on october 13th of 1917 that she would give uh she would perform a miracle for all to see and so on um on october 13th 1917, there was about 70,000 people that gathered in this, uh, in this field in, in, uh, in Fatima and the, it had been raining all night, the night before. And then this morning, or and then on the morning of the entire ground was, was drenched. The whole place was still, you know, still pouring rain. And then at the moment that the kids had their apparition, uh, the final apparition with the Virgin, suddenly the rain stopped. And then, um, all the people that were there, the 70,000 people claimed to have seen a phenomenon in the sky where the sun danced and gave off different colors and did amazing things. So it's called, you know, the, the, the dancing of the sun is what it's referred to. And you can even look up the at the newspapers at the time um, uh, that, that that covered it and reported it as well. So I think it's a really cool story about these three kids, and they were in also they were being persecuted by the government in Portugal at the time and everything for the operation. So I'd love to um, tell that story, and I do have I, I, I do have a script that's based on the memoirs of uh, one of the surviving. Um, uh, visionaries, uh, Sister Lucia. So I'd love to, like we were able to uh, take Father Remorse memoirs and translate them to a very commercial film on screen. I'd love to do the same thing with uh, Our Lady of Fatima's apparitions through Sister Lucia's memoirs one day. As a devout Catholic, what are your thoughts on exorcism and have they changed at all over the course of producing this film? Great question. Um, so exorcism is a really interesting uh, ministry that, you know, I think it, uh, a lot of people are intrigued by, but know very little about. Um, but I, I think, it, you know, for me, it always goes back to, um, you know, it's very biblically based in, you know, if you look at the Gospels, there's a number of um, of uh, scenes where uh, Jesus is uh, casting demons out of uh, various people and um, and having conversations with the apostles about it. And, and so there's a lot of really interesting things that come up in those discussions in, 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 in the gospels. And, um, one of the things that Jesus, and so Jesus kind of, uh, is the original exorcist, if you will, that sort of lays out the law and the rules for, uh, for the ministry. And it really comes down to the power of prayer. So there's one, I, I, the one that I always really love to, to cite is there's one moment in the gospel where Jesus says, um, where, where these apostles are trying to cast out a demon from somebody and they can't do it. And so then Jesus is the one who ultimately comes up and through the power of his prayers, he's able to cast out the demon. And then, 
the uh, the apostles ask it later and they say, Jesus, how is it that our prayers didn't work and yours didn't? He said, oh, th- these demons are, these ones are, this one was really, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, I feel bad that I'm, I don't have our Lord's <laughs> words memorized, but he basically says like, this is a really difficult demon and they can only come out through prayer and fasting. And so, um, so again, you learn that like the, and, and the word exorcism means um, actually to expel, right? Or to cast out. So the idea is that you are um, trying to bring healing to people that are afflicted by demonic spirits through uh, prayer. And it's only through, and I think it's even a line that, that uh, you know, Russell says in, in the Pope's Exorcist, he says, only through constant prayer is the demon going to give up. That's the only way you can beat him. That's, that's the essence of an exorcism is really just focused prayer um, from somebody who's very devout. And then eventually the, the demons, uh, which don't understand suffering, uh, give themselves up because they can't stand the power. They can't stand the pain of the prayer. And they, they ultimately are, are cast out of a person. So I will say that I learned a lot more. I, I knew a lot about the ministry, especially through the Gospels and, and what our Lord says about it. But through the process of making this movie, I met a number of, of actual Catholic exorcists uh, and, you know, in doing research and just trying to figure out um, to try to make sure that we did this as, as authentic as possible. And so I'd say I, I, it didn't change my feelings about exorcism, but it was really fascinating to meet these guys and hear their stories about, you know, jaws coming unhinged or snake tongues coming out or, you know, I think one of my favorite stories was um, one exorcist that I met. He mentioned that uh, there was like a, a, a pair of grandparents that brought in their grandson one day and the grandparents uh, were raising the kid. You know, I'm not sure what had happened to his parents, but they were the ones that were more or less his guardian. And they were certain that he was possessed. And so the, the exorcist said, I didn't think that this boy was possessed. He, he, you know, he just didn't come across like that to me. And he said, what I always the exorcist said, what I always do is um, I'll do like, like a test prayer in my head in Latin. So he says, I don't say it out loud, but while we're sitting there and we're exchanging pleasantries or, you know, maybe I'm getting them a glass of water while they're sitting down in my office. He said, in my mind, I'll just say, you know, I'll just say a prayer. Like if, if you are a demon, you know, tell me your name. Um, and he says that he says this prayer in his mind in Latin. So he didn't say it out loud. He said, as soon as he did that, he said, the boy jumped up out of the seat and spoke to him in a voice that wasn't his. And he said, you'll never know my name. And oh, so the guy boy. said, oh, I knew at that point that he was definitely possessed. So oh, boy. Lots of great, interesting stories like that that came up that I, I just found fascinating. How will the ongoing writer strike impact the motion picture industry as a whole and the work you're doing more specifically. Sure. Well, and you know, it is unfortunate uh, that, that, um, that they weren't able to come to an agreement and that, that the writers are, are, are forced to go on strike. Um, but I fully support the writers in the strike. I think it's, I think it's def- definitely necessary and needed. It's been a while since these um, contract negotiations, uh, you know, resulted in a strike. I think the last one was maybe 2008, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and so I think, it, you know, a lot has changed in the industry since then. So I think what the writers are asking for, is is definitely fair in terms of um you know you know just trying to renegotiate these contracts with the advent of all the new technologies and streaming services and you know entertainment has changed so much since the last time this happened that uh, i think it's definitely probably needed um for the the industry as a whole to move forward and and to make sure that the writers are being compensated um in in the best way possible 
and in the fairest of ways possible. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood is going to, you know, come to a halt for, for a certain period of time until they come to, to an agreement. And I think everybody sort of understands that uh, and, and, is, and is supportive of the writers for that. And so however long it takes uh, until they can come to an agreement, we will, um, we will be here waiting and encouraging them to, uh, to move forward with the strike and hopefully find a, a peaceful resolution that works for everybody. It seems like we're seeing it first on late night TV, but I imagine that's going to trickle down you know, it even, does. So, even so those are definitely the, the, you know, the late night talk shows, the ones that, you know, that have a team of writers and that are, that are, you know, shooting, uh, you know, on, on a daily basis um, or even weekly, those, those ones are definitely impacted the, you know, initially because those, those shows are being shot, you know, shot, you know, live to tape almost in, you know, the, the week or the day that they're, that they're airing. So um, you see it there first, a lot of other shows, you know, it, it'll depend on how long the strike goes on for. Right. So there's certain like, like daytime soaps, a lot of times those shows are six months um, out in terms of they've got at least six months of episodes in in the can already so that they you know you won't necessarily you might not even feel it for for instance like on a day's type soap or on different um, on different series depending on when their production schedule was or when they're shooting um, going into the summer I think is a good time for them to do this because a lot of places tend to have a hiatus um, during the summer anyways so it'd be great if they could kind of work this uh, out uh, as soon as possible and with the least amount of impact to the rest of the industry, but that'll really depend on how long the strike goes on for. And sure, if I'm, if we were on strike for a whole year or even six months, you're definitely going to, um, you would see a huge impact on the entertainment industry. But I have faith that, um, that the studios, the producers, the writers will all be able to, to come to an agreement, uh, hopefully, uh, shortly. It does seem like it's designed for high pressure because we are in the middle of May sweeps for the networks. Yes. And, and again, those are all negotiating tactics, you know, that, that both sides use in, in different ways uh, to their advantage. Um, and it, 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 I, I hope it will help, it, you know, uh, increase the speed with which they can resolve the, um, the talks and the disputes. On the other hand, it doesn't really put one network at an advantage over any other. So, you know, they're all they're all facing the same circumstances. Yes. And, and as are the, the movie studios as well. I mean, you know, for, you know, uh, I know the a lot of summer, people are trying summer to get box office. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, a lot of those movies are the, the summer box office movies. A lot of those guys, you know, the, those things have been shot already. They're in post They're you know, they're, they're ready to market and, and push them out. So, um, but it, it definitely is, you know, it, nobody's able to set up and, and do a new deal as of right now on a new movie. So for instance, like you, you, you know, you talked, uh, you know, you brought up about the sequels that we're, we're tentatively working on, on, uh, for Pope's exorcist. So all of that, like we won't be able to work with any writers obviously until the strike is over. And it's the same thing, whether it's at the studio level, or the network level, um, everybody's kind of in the same boat. Is there anything you'd like to add, Michael, that we haven't talked about today? Um, you know, that's a great question, Damien. I think we talked about some great stuff. Just, I, it just, I, I think maybe I'd, I'd like to say just a thank you to anybody out there who who has supported the film and and uh, gone out to see it. Or also, I'd, I'd like to mention um, the the movie is still playing in theaters uh, as of right now. But it uh, as of yesterday, it launched on, um, or maybe it was two days ago. Sorry, uh, it launched on uh, on video on demand, so you can uh, rent or buy the film now via iTunes, uh, Vudu, uh, Amazon Prime, any any. Of the whatever your, your favorite streaming services, um, the movies available to rent and to buy. And just want to thank everybody for uh, for supporting the film. 
Michael, thanks again for your time today. Oh, thank you, Damien. I really appreciate you uh, setting this conversation up for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A special thanks goes out to Michael Kazmarek for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks to Sony Pictures Entertainment for the extra audio heard in this week's episode. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.